0: Hey, welcome to In Doubt. This week on the show, we talk with Christian apologist Jonathan Moreau on the truth of truth and tolerance.
1: Why is Jesus the only way? It's not because we're smarter or we want to be in and you to be out, has nothing to do with it. The question really is, did Jesus have the authority to rightly diagnose the fundamental problem of humanity and could he do something about it? Because really, at the end of the day, why is Jesus the only way according to Christianity? Is because he's the only medicine that will cure the disease that's killing us.
0: Hey, welcome again to In Doubt. I hope you're enjoying this fall so far. If you're new to In Doubt, welcome. In Doubt exists to bring the gospel to the relevant issues of life and faith that we all face every day, cultivating conversation. You know, it's amazing what can happen in a conversation. You know, we could tell story after story in our own lives of how conversations have changed us. And we can tell story after story in the Bible of how conversations have changed different people. Let me just look at one with you from the Bible. It's the story of the conversation between King David and Nathan. David, uh, although he was a man after God's own heart, as the scripture says, was still a sinner. You know, unfortunately, among many good things, uh, David's also known for his act of adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, and then his act of indirectly but purposefully murdering her husband, and scripture makes it sound as if David didn't really know that he had wronged God in this large or massive way. You know, I think many of us can be in that same place of David sometimes. You know, Although perhaps not manifested in the exact same way, you know, we sin. We do things that completely dishonor God, yet we go about our lives doing the same things because we can be blind to our sin. Even though that sin hurts us and has caused damage in our lives, We continue on without thought really, only numbing that brokenness with various things. But the story continues with David. You can actually read it in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 13 if you'd like, but Nathan comes to David, sent by the Lord and starts to talk to him. You know, he first shares with David a fictional story about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had many lambs, but the poor man had only one and the poor man loved this one lamb and it lived happily with the poor man and his family. And yet, when a traveler came uh, to, to the rich man, the rich man didn't want to you know make food with one of his lambs, and he had a lot of them, but he took the poor man's one lamb to make dinner. At this point in the story, David interrupted the story out of anger because he couldn't believe the injustice that had taken place. Nathan then responds by saying that David was in the same place as the rich man, but in real life. You know, after hearing clearly from Nathan where David's faults you know, were, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. David changed from an ignorance of sin to a full knowledge of his sin to a repentance of sin. This didn't come from just anywhere, but from a conversation. You know, conversations can remove blindness. It it can comfort the afflicted and save the lost. And in doubt, we want to help provide conversations that God uses to do this very thing. You know, the way we provide and stimulate conversations is primarily through our weekly radio podcast show, which is called by the same name of this ministry, in doubt. Every week on Mondays, we release a new conversation with a recognized Christian leader or author or pastor on a different subject relating to life or faith. If you check out our archives on our site, you'll find conversations on mental health, sexuality, marijuana, alcohol, dating, history, movies, video games, music, art, and more. We also write weekly articles that get into various life issues or Christian subjects that are purposed purpose to provide readers with a deeper understanding of the will of God in their lives. We also write Bible studies and have a free five-week video Bible study series through the book of Jude. It's for individuals and groups to use. And we've recently actually put together a resource hub for Christian material on the Christian perspective on recreational marijuana. I mean, this week on Wednesday, October 17th, the Canadian government is legalizing recreational marijuana so it's, it's just critical. If we think carefully and biblically about this, everything I've said and more can be found at indoubt.ca. Anyways, this week we have with us Christian apologist Jonathan Moreau, super grateful that we had the the chance and opportunity to chat with him. Uh, We're talking about truth and tolerance. You see, the Christian understanding of truth and tolerance greatly differ than culture's understanding of truth and tolerance. You know, when talking about truth and tolerance, we can't assume we're talking about the same thing at all. Our conversation today with Jonathan helps us understand how truth and tolerance are defined by culture and what truth and tolerance are truthfully. And not only this, but Jonathan also helps us in our approach in engaging our truth-confused and tolerance-confused culture with the truths of the gospel. So here's our conversation with Jonathan Murrow. With me again today is author and speaker Jonathan Moreau. Uh, If you listen regularly, you'll know we had Jonathan on with us about a month ago now. Anyways, Jonathan is the director of cultural engagement at Impact 360 Institute and an adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola University. He holds a master of divinity, a master in philosophy of religion and ethics, and a doctorate in worldview and culture. Thanks for being here with us. it's great to be back so firstly those of you listening right now who don't know jonathan go back to our episode on gen z which was the first week of september And you can hear more there about Jonathan. But Jonathan, I'll ask this. I'm wondering, by way of introduction, why don't you just share a really quick snapshot of who you are, but then uh, maybe your favorite apologetic argument or truth or something like that?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, again, my name is Jonathan Marr. I'm the director of cultural engagement for Impact 360 near Atlanta, Georgia. I've been married 17 years, have three kids, and I've been following Jesus since I was a junior in high school, but I've always been captivated by the question of how do we know what we believe, why we believe it, and how do we live that out. It was really important for me during my high school and college years to be a part of that question. And ever since then, God's just given me a passion for doing that and equipping the next generation to know those things, whether it's at Impact 360 through our summer programs for high schoolers or our nine-month gap year, um, you know, or just in when I'm speaking or teaching or through my books, like Welcome to College. You know, I wanted to help people, especially students, make wise decisions that are based on truth. And, um, and that's what I have kind of a heart for doing. And in terms of kind of what's my favorite apologetic argument, uh, that's a tough one. Um, apologetics is the study for the defense of the faith, um, like giving a rational or reasonable defense for why you believe what you believe. I love talking about, so I wrote a book called Questioning the Bible. And so I really, I would have probably today on this interview, I'll answer it that way, that just helping give people confidence that God really has spoken and that we can trust that that the Bible is God's word, that we have the right books, that this wasn't just arbitrary or a power play or a copy of a copy of a copy, but actually we can, these are claims rooted in history. You can investigate with eyes wide open. And ultimately why that matters is the question of authority because if God's spoken, then there are authoritative answers to life's biggest questions. And I think that's an amazingly important question to
0: explore. I love that. Um, If you had 15 seconds, if someone asked you what is Impact 360 Institute, what would you, what would you say?
1: yeah we want to cultivate leaders who follow Jesus and that's high school and college age students we equip them you know with a biblical worldview and a biblical understanding of vocation and calling and also leadership and influence and how to use that and leverage that for God's glory and in uh, the next generation to kind of lead out of that from those high school and college years and that's really in a nutshell what we do in an experiential learning active learning environment with a small group of other believers that you can really become best friends with for life and grow deeper and and go have influence for Christ in our culture.
0: I love it. Yeah, and if you're listening, uh, head back to our first interview we had. He kind of goes a little bit more to detail about what exactly practically that looks like at Impact360 Institute as well. Uh, anyways, Jonathan, I came across a video on uh, Impact360 Institute's YouTube page, uh, and I found it really insightful. It's ca- sort of a featured video there. It was this cartoon of a conversation between these two guys on the issues of truth and, and tolerance. Uh, one was a Christian, the other one wasn't. Uh, for those listening, I'll provide the link on the episode page for, for you to watch it. But this video made me want to ask some questions to you about truth and tolerance. Um, for, firstly, definitions are so important. Oftentimes they're they're bent, they're misshaped, they, they change uh, through time. So let me just ask you this in kind of a fun way. If you, Jonathan, were an agnostic philosophy professor who was really shaped by 21st century Western civilization culture. How would you define truth to your students? Your your students come in on your first day, you're like, this is what truth is. What what would you say?
1: Yeah, so if I was the agnostic professor, and what I would do is I would probably say, hey, you know, truth is kind of in some ways what you can get away with, and it's also what you sincerely believe, right? Because everybody has sincere beliefs. And it's kind of true for you, but not everybody else, because that's kind of closed-minded to impose those views on everybody else. So if I was an agnostic kind of philosophy professor, I would pick some examples, And say you're not really going to be one of those closed-minded bigoted people who disagree with that right and so that's how i would kind of frame it if i was an agnostic professor who was kind of a relativist at the end of the day
0: okay so take off your you know glasses of agnostic philosophy professor what is the true definition of truth
1: yeah so truth um is basically this it's what corresponds with reality or the everyday definition is truth is telling it like it is so whenever whenever i have a belief a statement or an idea that matches up with reality, then you have truth. And sincerity doesn't create truth. It's, it's, I like this. Use this as an example. Um, I'm terrified of heights, so I won't be jumping out of a perfectly good airplane anytime soon. But if I were and, and I jump out and I have a pack on and I'm hurtling to the earth, I guarantee you I'll have all the sincerity in the world when I pull that, that cord, right? But the problem is if, if someone improperly packed that chute, All the sincerity in the world won't matter. And what the implications are of that is there's a lot of people in our world who have sincere religious beliefs, in many cases more sincere than many Christians I know, who have been Buddhists or Mormons or whoever. But sincerity doesn't create truth any more than we can have our own truth and somebody else have their own truth. Because at the end of the day, either Jesus rose from the dead and is the son of God, the son of man, or he's not, and not both, right? Either Allah is the one true God and Muhammad is his prophet, is true or false, but not both, or there is no God or whatever it might be. And so just believing something doesn't make it true. So that's how I'd start that conversation.
0: You know, it's interesting though, like as you define true truth, it just, it makes sense. Totally. It just, you know, if, if you're saying this thing is true, then it's either true or it's, it's not true. Why is it that, you know, this, so many, you know, philosophy professors, why is it that they can go in there into colleges and universities and and say something that doesn't make doesn't make sense? What is it about their definition of truth that I don't know, is so convincing? Or how how do they make it sound true (laughs) if it's so obviously not?
1: Yeah. So we, we live in a culture that really has raised us to believe that how you feel determines what's real. And if I feel it, therefore, it must be true. In fact, Oxford's word of the year uh, last year was post truth, which what that does is it takes truth and brings it underneath feelings and usefulness and things like that. And so that's one of the things that's happening with that conversation around feelings. Another the way they make it feel so persuasive is some people in the past have had conversations or imposed their views in a way that minimized people or that also excluded people or hurt people. And therefore, like, hey, when when we don't want to do those in the name of spiritual and moral things and, and several other things are happening where they're privatizing those beliefs, because it's kind of like what Francis Safer used to talk about the upper story and the lower story. You know, the lower stories were publicly available evidences like science and things like that, where we can investigate. And science is the basically guarantor of truth. But then questions of God and morality and spirituality are in the upper story. And you just have faith, whatever that is, in those. And so what's happening in that classroom or in our culture is people are kind of driving a wedge between kind of scientific reality on the one hand and the spiritual and moral truth on the other. And there's a long history to that. And we can get into that maybe if you wanted to, but that's basically what's going on. there.
0: Interesting. No, that's helpful. Uh, all right, let's go back to the agnostic philosophy professor. How would you then talk to your students about the issue and definition of tolerance and intolerance?
1: Yeah, so if I was the agnostic, so this is not my own personal view, <laughs> the dominant view in our culture is what I call the new tyranny of tolerance. And this is the idea of all ideas are equally valid, and to disagree with them is to be intolerant or bigoted, especially if it has something to do with their own personal choices or sincere beliefs or identity or sexuality or something like that or morality. Because who are you to judge? You need to just be accepting. That's what tolerance does that's how that definition would normally get kind of defined today in our culture, probably in the classroom, which is you just need to not make exclusive claims. You need to accept other people's beliefs uh, because that's what a truly tolerant person does.
0: Okay. So what is tolerance actually?
1: Yeah. True tolerance at the end of the day is extending to someone else the right to be wrong. And Christianity, I think is uniquely positioned to be truly tolerant. So for example, When I interact with friends of mine who are atheists or agnostic or Muslims or or whatever, whether or not we disagree, I treat them as made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect regardless of how I'm treated. And so I tolerate them and I extend to them the right to be wrong, which is what I want from them, the, the right to be wrong. And then we'll have a discussion about what's actually true. And so true tolerance dignifies the other person, but honestly doesn't trivialize things that matter, that are real differences, that have real world implications, and that really shape the course of our lives, how we arrange our lives together, how relationships work, how culture works, society, and everything else. And so true tolerance is not all ideas are equally valid, any more than we would say that true tolerance you know, applied to prescriptions and medical, it would be like every prescription is equally valid. Well, no, it's not. I mean, we—I mean, just thinking about that for three seconds, we know that. So so how is it the case that we don't do the same thing with economic systems? Okay, are capitalism and socialism essentially the same? No, very different. One could be true, one could be false, but they're certainly not the same anymore than Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, right, so on. And so being tolerant doesn't eliminate those differences. It says, no, here's what the differences are, here's why that matters, but I'm going to treat you with respect along the way.
0: That's good. Jonathan, you have the privilege of meeting hundreds of people as they come through uh, Impact 360 Institute. You get to talk to a lot of people, meet them, learn where they've come from. And I'm assuming many do come from Christian backgrounds. I'm wondering, how have you seen these sort of postmodern ideas of truth and tolerance seep into the church and kind of just general North American Christianity?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. A couple observations. One my default in pretty much any conversation I have with a Christian is to assume that they're going to think that moral and spiritual truth is relative or that's just true for them. So what does that mean? It means in the church when a, when a pastor is given up to give a sermon from the Bible, more often than not, at the very least, that sermon is going to be received as self-help that's true for me. So even though it's very good exposition of Scripture, by the time it gets to the hearer, the audience, because of the culture they've grown up in, they're going to relativize that to me. That's what's happening in the churches, and that's what's also happening with students because they don't want to be judgmental when it comes to spiritual and moral claims. And what we must do is kind of help them recover that real truth does exist, moral truth does exist. But their are defaults coming up and raising youth groups and churches that kind of give little little nuggets and 10 minutes on here and there on devotional, you know things like that. Well, you know, I, I like to call it the worst question you could ask of the Bible is what does the Bible mean to me? But we hear it all the time in small groups. Yeah. The Bible means nothing to you. The Bible means what it means. And then the right question is, how does it apply to you? Great question. And so what does the Bible mean? I discover it because if I actually want to hear from God, I need to discover what he's revealed and spoken. And then there's lots of different ways that that can apply to me, but the verse doesn't change meaning because I'm I believe something about it. So in many ways, not only have we relativized truth and morality in Christian subculture, We've also honestly relativized even the Bible in the process, and that's kind of snuck its way in there as well. So in many ways, one of the first things we get to do and have to do at Impact360 is help students recover, hey, you actually can know the truth. Here's how you go about that. There really is moral truth. And now the real question is, what is true? Because everything can't be equally true.
0: Yeah, no, that that's really helpful. Thanks, Jonathan. Some of our friends listening right now maybe are raising an eyebrow because they do believe that personal beliefs are generally relative and that it's, it is intolerant or just unnecessary even to judge others' personal beliefs. Jonathan, what would you say to them to maybe encourage, but also challenge them?
1: Yeah. So here's what I would say in, in that. And so if I would say we need to kind of approach this question the way Jesus did, and we need to be as judgmental as he was. And so one of the things that he did was he asked a lot of questions, but in one case, which is probably the most popular verse beyond John 3, 16, is the verse from Matthew which says, you know, do not judge lest you be judged. And yet, right after that, Jesus makes a judgment (laughs) against what to do. And so even if you look in the context, if the most loving person who ever lived could navigate that without being self-righteous, and we're not supposed to be self-righteous where I think I'm better than you because I have the truth, that's a big problem. But what we're getting at now is, you know, and if you're somebody who's hearing this and you've been hurt by Christians who have abused the truth or power or authority, I'm really sorry. And I'm sorry that's your experience. And that shouldn't have been that way. What we don't want to do is take that and then normalize. Well, I guess we shouldn't make any claims about morality and spirituality because that's just not the way reality works. Because think of it like a map. You know, each road is going to lead you somewhere. Each road is going to lead you somewhere morally in your relationships, with your friends, with your parents, with your kids one day, whatever that might be. Spiritually, it's the same thing. And so if there is a God who created you and loves you, wouldn't we want to know that if it's true or false? And if it is true, then wouldn't that God have the ability to speak into our life and, and say, here's how life works best, and here's how to relate to me and others and everybody else, and that's the way the world is? Or telling it like it is, which is just the definition of truth. So we don't want to be self-righteous, but we also don't want to remove the category of truth because we all lose if we do that.
0: Yeah, that's good, Jonathan. For those listening who tend to believe maybe the biblical ideas of truth and tolerance, people that love Jesus, they love the church, they've been encouraged by your words today. What is a, a cultural challenge you'd give them? Maybe one thing that they can do, even immediately after listening to this conversation, uh, towards helping them share the gospel in our post-church, post-truth world?
1: Yeah, I think one great thing would be just to, if they're in a conversation is, hey, what do you think about, you know, who Jesus is? Like, if you ever read the earliest biographies of Jesus, of Nazareth, you know, which are the earliest writings of Jesus. And so, which we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And just, hey, what do you, who do you think Jesus was? And just listen to what people say. And then get in a conversation and say, lead them to a place where they can have those. I mean, Gen Z, about 58% agree that there's more than one way to eternal life. There can't just be one way. And so the default is going to be to relativize or pluralize that conversation. And what you want to do is go, well, look, why is Jesus the only way? It's not because we're smarter or we want to be in and you to be out. It has nothing to do with it. The question really is, did Jesus have the authority to rightly diagnose the fundamental problem of humanity, and could he do something about it? Because really, at the end of the day, why is Jesus the only way, according to Christianity? It's because he's the only medicine that will cure the disease that's killing us. And it's not a matter of arrogance or superiority or anything else. It's, you know, Buddhist medicine is not going to work. Islamic medicine is not going to work. You know, atheistic medicine is not going to work. If Jesus really was raised from the dead and was who he claimed to be, and we can investigate that, then... That's why he's the only way. And so connecting the dots in reality without using kind of the churchy language and getting people talking about Jesus, because that's where the questions matter the most. And that's what I would encourage uh, listeners to do.
0: Last question. How do you, Jonathan, personally get over or have you got over the fear of man when, when talking with others? Because I think a lot of people, I mean, even just that simple question of what do you think Jesus is like? It's your, your nerves are going right. You're getting your hair cut, let's say, and you're talking to your barber. You know, H- how do you get over that?
1: Absolutely. The way I would get over that is to, um, and again, everyone is always just a little bit nervous when they have that first conversation before. I mean, I'm on a plane or wherever. It's not as though it's just like, you know, nerves of steel and I never, you know, get bothered (laughs) by anything. That's not the case. But I find it just kind of like jumping in a pool. Once you get in the water, you get better. And so once you start having these conversations, you realize they're not as scary. So it's honestly just, you know what? I'm going to dive in and I'm going to recognize, I'm going to just try to make a contribution in this conversation. I don't have to get them all the way to the foot of the cross in this conversation or whatever. I'm just going to try to have a spiritual conversation that's helpful. And I'll ask questions, just learn what they believe and why maybe leave it at that. My goal is just to understand what this person in front of me really believes about questions that matter and why. And then that's a success. But the more, Hey, you know, would you mind if I asked you a few questions? I'm just curious. That's kind of a stranger kind of thing. But if it's like a friend, it's like, hey, you know, I was just curious, did you guys grow up religious or go to church or anything like that? Open into question. And they'll probably going to share a bunch that you can then just ask a couple follow up questions just like you would about anything else in life. And you'll kind of get to see where they're coming from. And that'll probably open up the door for further conversation later. But the key is just to get in conversations, overcome that fear, say a quick breath prayers like, Lord, help me and dive in and <laughs> and see what he does in it, you know, and, and, and God will honor that.
0: I love it. Thanks so much, Jonathan, for spending time with us again. If you're listening and have enjoyed what we've been talking about, uh, head to impact360institute.org. There you're going to find tons of resources, including the cartoon I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, Also, check out jonathanmoreau.org. There you can find books and other resources from Jonathan as well. Thanks so much, Jonathan. I hope to chat with you again.
1: Yeah, it sounds good. It's been great to be with you.
0: That was Christian apologist Jonathan Moreau, who serves as the Director of Cultural Engagement at Impact360 Institute. If you're listening on the radio right now and didn't catch the conversation, or at least part of the conversation, just head to our site to listen to today's show and 143 others. You can find our site at indoubt.ca if you live in Canada, or indoubt.com if you live in the States. We also have an Indoubt app, and that can be downloaded for free on the Apple iTunes Store or the Android App Store. Just search Indoubt, and you're going to find it. You know, when thinking about truth and tolerance and engaging our culture with the gospel, It's important to remember this one fact that causes many non-Christians to actually struggle with Christians. Basically, it's when a professing Christian says there is such thing as truth and that Jesus is the truth and yet that truth doesn't seem to change their life and the way they live. They still act like the world. And I would suspect that a reason why people leave or reject Christianity is because of how they perceive it playing out in real life in people or because, you know, they hear someone uh, going on about the truth, about truth, and tolerance, yet go about gossiping, mocking, judging selfishly, and so on. Obviously, the truth hasn't changed them. So, for example, you know, non-Christians may witness their, you know, quote-unquote, Christian father verbally abusing their mom constantly, or they see their Christian friend partying really hard on Saturday night doing things that you wouldn't dream of. The list can go on of experiences where, you know, quote-unquote, Christian people do very unchristian things. You know, Christian people preaching the truth, yet not practicing it. So I get it. You know, who would be interested in remaining in or joining a group of people who claim to know and love God, yet live lives that contradict it? I I wouldn't be. So no matter where you may stand, it's important to consider the fact that everything we do in life is based upon our beliefs. You know, what, what we believe to be true for us, whether we know it or not. You know, our behaviors are the direct result of what we believe to be true. We can say that the reason for every thought, every action, every word we produce can be traced back to some belief we have. And much of the time this happens automatically, we don't even think about it. Now oftentimes, the beliefs we say we have contradict our actions. For example, I may say, you know, I believe in supporting local businesses and seeing them thrive and yet I'm caught shopping at a big corporation and eating from a worldwide fast food chain, right? What's revealed is that even though I said I believed in one thing, my actions proved otherwise. You know, once when referring to a group of religious leaders, Jesus said to them in Matthew, For they preach, but do not practice. You know, he was rightly accusing them of living hypocritically. They were preaching the truth, then living a lie. This should cause us to think both of our beliefs and behaviors. We need to ask ourselves, whether you're a Christian or not, you know what do I say I believe to be true, and how does that impact my behavior? Or what beliefs are revealed that are based on my words, thoughts, and actions? You know this kind of self-reflection is so important. It's humbling. Um, everyone will have to admit that they've held to certain beliefs that they've then contradicted by their behaviors. If you're professing Christian, then think carefully on this. You're not a Christian because you say you believe in Jesus, or because you say you know the truth. But you're a Christian because your behaviors prove your belief in Jesus, that that truth really works. In other words, it's not the faith you say you have that counts, but rather the works producing faith that does actually count. I don't know about you, but as a professing Christian, I I do not want to be in the group of people that Jesus says won't enter the kingdom of heaven, even though they said, Lord, Lord. I also don't want to be a reason for someone leaving or rejecting the Christian faith because of my contradictory behavior. You know, I want my genuine belief in Jesus to show itself in a Jesus-like life. I want the true truth of the gospel to impact my life in such a way that my belief in the truth won't contradict the way I live my life. I want to show others that the true truth of the gospel really does change lies. Anyways, if you're interested in financially supporting the efforts of the Ministry of uh, consider donating. It's really easy to do. Just click the donate button and follow the simple instructions at indout.ca if you live in Canada or indoubt.com if you live in the States. Connect with us online this week. We'd love to hear from you. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can head there and find us. Well, I'm Isaac and next week we hear about a book of the Bible that's often overlooked and misunderstood. We'll see you then.